Hello and welcome to MBLA Radio. I'm your host, Josh, with co-host Jamie. Today we're going to be interviewing former candidate for House Legislative District 24, Creighton Knight, about the opposing bills in the legislature currently, House Bill 24 and Senate Bill 1038. So to briefly start out on Senate Bill 1038, I'd like to read the statement of purpose submitted by Senator Tammy Nichols. If enacted, this bill, known as the Freedom in Education Savings Accounts, FIE, would create savings accounts for Idaho families on K-12 through age children. The act would allow dollars to follow students so parents could access the education services and environments that work best for their children. 80% of the most current available statewide general maintenance and operations fund expenditures per full term average daily attendance as calculated by the department, or approximately $5,950, so $5,950, will be available to eligible students based on 2020 through 21 State Department of Education financial summaries. A student participating in the program must be a resident of Idaho who is eligible to enroll in a public school for any grades K through 12. Parents will be able to access and spend these funds on behalf of their child for approved educational expenses through an online platform. A parent review commission is established to provide recommendations to the department about how to implement, administer, and improve the program. The program will come into effect on and after July 1, 2023. So Creighton, is this just an added tax? How will people pay for this? Yeah, thanks for having me today, guys. Um, No, actually, it's not an added tax. Currently under proposal right now, we spend about $3.5 billion is, is what the education budget is. This program uses existing funds already allocated and and earmarked for general education expenses. And this program only represents, um, it's only, it only is supposed to cost $40 million. So if you think about everybody out there listening, got a three and a half billion dollar budget, right? This is $40 million. And, uh, for those of us challenged by math as myself, sometimes I did the numbers on my calculator. That is 0.01%. So one one hundredth of, of a percent. So no, no new taxes. It's using existing funds. The impact is pretty significant. Okay, so I had a question last night. I was reading through the bill, and I realized that if I was going to do this with my family, that in there it said we could be audited. Could you speak on that a little bit? Who might that agency be? Where would they come from? How would they be created? Any layman would want to know as soon as they read the bill. Yeah, sure. You know, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, we want freedom. And again, it is it is still taxpayer dollars, so people obviously have to utilize them properly in, in for the intent of the bill. So, with respect to auditing, Section thirty three um, six six zero four is the, the paragraph says state control over non public schools. Number one, the first paragraph, the first sentence read reads that it does not permit government agencies to exert any kind of control or supervision over any non public school or or homeschooling. So all the homeschoolers out there, we we hear you. We know your concerns. The good news is, is that the first paragraph says that this does not surrender the rights of parents to educate their kids in a homeschool environment the way that they would choose to. It also doesn't require a Christian school or just a non-affiliated, non-sectarian type of uh, 
a private school to change their creed or their code. So it's really, it really um, gives that freedom that people have really been wanting and um, for that one. So, so with respect to that, um, it's, it's in, and that's, that's my first scare is a government agency going to come in here. Are they going to control this bill? Are they going to make me have to do something to get this money? And I believe that that's what almost anybody's as being a homeschooling parent. That would be the first train of thought that you'd think. You'd think, okay, I'm getting an audit. This is scary. Do what, And that's immediately what I thought. I don't want this bill. This is scary because I'm going to get audited how I'm using my money. But as you actually read through the bill, you'll understand that it's for educational purposes and there's going to be committee that's over it. It's going to be your peers. It's not going to be the government coming in and doing it. Um, so that's my thoughts. Yeah, and, and, and continuing in that same section about state control over non-public schools, in addition to number one, it does not permit, and that's exactly what the language says, it does not permit the government to exert control. Section three, paragraph three of that says, and I wrote it down because I thought it was so powerful and it really speaks to the concerns that we have heard, honestly, from some homeschoolers and from some um, folks who want to send their kids to private school. Here's, here's what it says. A qualified school shall not be required to alter its creed, practices, admissions policies, or curriculum in order to accept the money. So I've, as a former school board member myself, I've served for over a year on a uh, local charter school here on the school board, where constantly at our charter school, we were fighting against the federal government and all the strings that are being attached. This bill actually spells out specifically that that cannot happen. So so it's not one of those things like, for example, and, and, and let me just back up real quick. That is very opposite of what we see right now in our school system. So people are asking themselves, yes. what in the heck? Why is all this gender craziness and all this DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion garbage? Why is it coming into our schools in Idaho? Well, the reason why it is, is because of the Biden administration is tying a lot of the federal funds to these type of things. Yeah. Now, thankfully, we have a lot of good liberty and cons true conservative Republican legislators this year who are addressing those with the bathroom bills and other things of that nature. But guys, <clears throat> it's not coming from a cabal necessarily within the state of Idaho. It's coming from the cabal out of Washington, D.C. Right. So everybody here can rest assured that if this bill passes here in the state of Idaho, these schools will not have to conform to any type of government policies or anything like that. Yep. And like I was uh, just telling Josh last night also, when I was reading this bill, it, it's just worded so much differently than the other bills because I was reading some former bills and things, the language in it. They're typically always talking about bureaucratic entities, um, functions. But with this one, it's the first where it's actually spelling out for you that the government's to not be involved. And I didn't see that in a lot of bills that I was looking through last night. So I really did like the language in it also. Yeah, so that kind of conversation leads into my next question. Uh, in the Idaho Constitution, there is a section in the education section known as the Blaine Amendment, which prohibits state funding of religious schools or institutions. So how would this Blaine Amendment affect uh, this bill in regards to religious homeschool parents or Christian private schools? That's a great question. Um, let's, I was thinking about this. So let's just take a little step back and, and just explain for folks who are listening, what is the Blaine Amendment? I, I didn't know what it was here until a couple of years ago. The Blaine Amendment was um, was an amendment that was proposed to the Constitution back in 1875 by Senator um, James G. Blaine from Maine. And here's the history of it. It's interesting, right? 
And basically the amendment said on its face, it sounded pretty good. And it, maybe it was for their concerns or whatever, which is basically, you know, we, we're not going to establish any kind of religion, obviously. And, and we're not going to promote any kind of religion in our public school system. But if you understand the, the, the historical context of where, where the Blaine Amendment came from, specifically, there was concern because of all the Irish and Italian uh, Catholics who were, who were emigrating to the United States back then in huge numbers. The concern back then, and it's kind of outdated for us today to even think about this, but the concern back then across the country was, was um, we don't want the Pope, the Catholic Pope, to have any kind of undue influence in our education system. What I think is interesting, I mean, we can set all that bias and fear, we can set aside, but here's something that is interesting, and I think that, that bears, bears uh, us to consider today, which is that even uh, over 100 years ago, they knew that education was the way to change your country. So because they recognized the power and the strength of education to shape and mold the way young people think, these young people who will then work and then become leaders, they said, hey, we don't want any type of, you know, we, in this case, we don't want the Pope and we don't want Catholics to overtake and influence the school system. So we're going to set all that aside because, you know, obviously we know that saying anything, we're not pro against any religion. The historical context was these other people are moving in. We're afraid they're of, of, of them taking over our education system and thereby changing the course of the country. So we're going to shut it down. The, uh, the amendment didn't pass because it was going to change the constitution, but still there was a principle there. And so a lot of states, even though it didn't pass the federal, a lot of states passed what was called what were referred to in the late 1800s, early 1900s as the Blaine Amendment. We have that here in Idaho. Basically, um, basically it just says, you know, we, we will not fund the religious schools. However, thank goodness for President Trump and for a conservative Supreme Court, because the state of Montana or Espinosa versus the Montana Department of Revenue, which was a Supreme Court case that was decided in 2020, it basically said that that the state of Montana's uh, was using that Blaine Amendment that they had already adopted as a way to discriminate against schools that were that were religious based schools because Montana set up a in, like an ESA they set up school choice on that. So for years it was the religious test, if you will, of a school that kind of kept school choice really at bay, you know, and, and really it was always, it would go to court and it would always get struck down based on that. So this was a real watershed case. And this is what's opened the door for us today. It's also opened the door in Arizona and Florida, other states, Kentucky, Tennessee, other states that have adopted similar either education, full education choice where the money follows a student or for education savings accounts like this one as well. Okay. So another question that I had was it, it speaks right in the bill, right at the beginning about that some of the money can go to college accounts. Um, I'm always looking at things like that because my my number one biggest concern is how much is the government going to have their hands in this? Uh, okay, college right off the bat, you know, like the funds can be used for college. So um, what's that all about? Can you tell us about that a little bit, Creighton? Yeah, you know, I can, great question. Um, yeah, when you read the beginning of the bill, it says that uh, the money can, can go to qualified post-secondary, which is college. But then when you read down further, you're like, it shows that it's really for funding K through 12. So um, what I believe it's for is that, that we have a lot of dual enrollment classes and everything. So what's cool is a lot of kiddos, um, my children have done it. A lot of kids have done it. And it's a really great program in Idaho where if you're already in high school, you can you can do dual enrollment with colleges. Yeah. And so what I believe is that if someone wanted to do that, like take some classes at CSI or online or something like that to earn college credit, they can use their ESA to towards and, that. And one. that and that saves time, right? Because then they don't have to go through all their general education right before they go in, correct? 
Well, they can actually knock a lot of that stuff out, and they're doing it at a much at a. Really, it saves a lot of money too because it's a lot cheaper to do that through a dual enrollment type program than it is to just be like maybe a full fully enrolled college student. Yep, and and the state of Idaho has done a great job over the last probably eight to ten years in promoting that. So you know, there are certain kids who are really committed to it, and they'll graduate with their G, you know, they'll graduate from high school mm-hmm. and they'll also have an AA degree already. So they've already yeah. knocked out two years of college. And as a parent of a college age kid, that's a pretty sweet deal if we can do it that way. Now imagine as a parent and all the parents out there listening or students out there listening, think about how much even better it would be if you could use your ESA money to pay for those textbooks. So then really, you know, your your education is even being funded even further and, and covered. So your expenses yeah. are very minimal. Yeah, and just think if you're a youth out there listening too, man, you just got two years of your life back that would have almost been wasted yeah. through general education, you know. So So currently some critics of the bill from the homeschool community itself say that this will increase government monitoring. Currently there are government programs that provide funding for homeschooling, but they do require government testing. So does this bill require testing or tracking for eligibility? I didn't read anything in the text of the bill that says that there is a, any separate testing that is, that is, or, you know, testing or any type of an extra barrier for qualification or anything like that. The only qualifications that are specifically spelled out in the, in the bill, which I think are really good ones, um, as a steward, you know, being good steward of public money is that the spending must be a qualified educational expense. Now, some of the folks who are a little more leery of government, what's a qualified one, you know? Um, is my textbook qualified? Is it not? It's more of a general thing. Is if, if a lot of the homeschoolers, and I, when I went to private school in kindergarten, we had the Abeka curriculum. The Abeka curriculum is okay. That is educational curriculum. You know, in other words, it doesn't have to be pushing forth that LGBTQ, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, all that other kind of, you know, PC garbage in order to be qualified. That's not what it's talking about. Not on a micro level. It's really more of a macro big picture. Domino's pizza, as good as it is, can't be used on your ESA, you know, but school supplies for your, for your homeschooler or going, sending your kiddo to, to a private school of your choice. That's all okay. And then again, specifically, as we talked about a few minutes ago, what's so nice and like what you pointed out, Jamie, too, is that unlike other bills, this one specifically says government cannot get involved. It cannot change the creed. In other words, it can't come in and push its agenda. Now, as a state, I believe that we, and as taxpayers, we have to have an educated population, you know, to go get good jobs and to have good families, etc. So again, the bill doesn't specifically state that there's any type of testing on that. My understanding is that the current way that homeschoolers interact with the state and any kind of testing or for competency or whatever, like ISATs, et cetera, none of that changes. It's all the same. One thing that is cool, though, is for kiddos who want to do the advanced placement classes, there's always an exam at the end of the year, right, um, for that to get that college credit. What's cool is the bill does cover expenses for those. So if your kiddo has taken advanced placement at a private school or at homeschool, and then there's a whatever the fee is. It's been years since I took mine, but it, you know whatever that fee is, you can. That's a qualified expense. They can use that. Um, here's what's really neat too, guys, and 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 I like the questions you guys are bringing out because let's talk about another one that the other side, if you will, the status quo people talk about, and their number one concern, and we could probably all chime in and say it together, is it takes money away from from public and rural schools. So we have to be really have to dig in on this one because that has been sort of a 
I'm not going to say red herring, but it's been somewhat, you know, it's pretty legitimate. Like, yeah. you know, if you live in a rural district and you're really proud of your school, like a Castleford or Buell or whatever, or even places, you know, that are, you know, Hanson area, et cetera, that's a concern, right? This is our school. We love our school. But here's what's nice. Uh, and, and here's to allay those concerns. First of all, it's only 80% of the money. So if you think about this, let's debunk the this, this is going to bankrupt public schools because everyone's going to go to that private school across town and it's going to bankrupt the school. Check this out. As you, as you read in the intro there, Josh, of the bill, 80% of the money follows the student. So what happens to the other 20%? The other 20% stays at the school that is now not educating that kid. So if you think about that, they're not educating the kid and they get 20% of the kid's money. So what does that mean for schools? Well, that means that you're getting paid 20% to cover other expenses that sometimes aren't covered by the by the direct fee. So it doesn't bankrupt the, the, the schools. It actually gives money to the schools, right? It continues to give money to the schools at a much smaller percentage, 20%. So that keeps them whole, okay, as well. But they also have less bodies and the class could be filled with another, right? That's true. They could be and, at, at and, full rate. And at, at that full point rate. in time, that 20% becomes free money if you... If you're talking about it. Exactly. You're exactly right, Jamie. It's free money. And so anybody out there worried about that, you know, no, it's not going to bankrupt the schools because they get 20% free money. Um, the other thing, too, is what about the rural schools? Is it going to empty out the rural schools? Well, a lot of the rural schools are very proud of, of, of what they yeah. do. And, and, and you don't really see a lot of dissatisfaction in those rural schools. You, usually in the rural schools, you find closer community involvement, closer community control, parental involvement. Those are all the elements that that's indicate how good a school is. And usually a study show that the more parental involvement, the more community involvement, the better the outcome. So I don't think that the rural schools have to worry about that. And even if they did lose some people, then they still get to keep the 20 percent for free money. Right. So that 20 percent, if a kid's not, you know, eating lunches, if the kid's not uh, you know, in a desk, you know, that's less overhead. Yeah, so from a business perspective, that's all profit. Can right? buy the teacher all the curriculum they need probably for the year or something like that just with one student. And I've spoken yeah. to teachers themselves who are in support of this bill because their classrooms are over capacity. They have multiple periods throughout the day where they have standing room only. There are kids standing in the back of their classroom without any desk to sit at because there's just too many children in each class we have a growing area and if we were to pull out some students out of the public school system and parents were wanting to do that for their family that would actually alleviate the way overstressed public education system that we have in Idaho today that's a great point that's an excellent point you know and if you think about it all those students who are standing they could you know, choose to go to a public or either another public school or a private school, or they could be homeschooled. Or there's other options too that we haven't even talked about, which we'll get to in a moment. But instead of standing there, you know, the the they can be empowered to go where they're going to get the best education. That twenty percent still remains. And if you think about it, that extra twenty percent to your point a few minutes ago earlier, Jamie, that means that the teachers aren't having to pull out of you know their po- out of their pocket yeah. to to buy supplies for kids who are standing up. Now that extra that twenty percent that was allocated to the to that headcount that actually can go in to pay for the supplies to pay for those things. So again, you know, when I think back about my um, 
time on the school board, one of the things that surprised me was how, and, and you hear a lot, you know, that Idaho schools are underfunded. I don't think it's really a funding top line issue. What I think the concern is, is that where does the money go? You know, what, when it filters through all the agencies and through all the administrative stuff and just, you know, how much of it en- ends up at the bottom of the day, at the end of the day at, in the classroom where it's needed, right? Like why would we spend three and a half billion dollars you know, teachers shouldn't have to be required to put their, you know, to put their own money into, into the, to pay for the, the supplies and everything mm-hmm. like that. So one of the things that surprised me when I was on the school board is like, well, where's all the money going? Well, a lot of the funding does not capture federal requirements, guys. So special ed, obviously we want to, you know, have sped, sped, it's called in schools. We want special education to help those kids, you know, learn functional skills and to be, you know, productive members of society based upon their, you know, and even elevate their abilities. But here's what a lot of people don't recognize is that the state doesn't fund adequately for these schools is if you have one or if you have a certain number of maybe kids who have to have transportation. So the federal government says you must do this. You must educate these kids in this way, a one size fits all. But they don't really give a lot of money to to do that. So when you think about the residual 20% that's left for, you know, after these students choose to do something else, guess where that 20% can go to? It can go to help fund the other areas where schools are lacking. And I think that's very powerful. And I really wish that the education lobby would, would get honest instead of crying all the time for more top line dollars. They would really take a hard look at this and say, hey, I know this is different, but, and it's something new, but this really could work because... You know, if you think about a business from a business standpoint, if I'm going to get 20% for basically doing nothing and have no overhead attached with that, that's pure bottom line. And that really gives our, our public schools, it strengthens them. It gives them the ability to cover the shortfalls and the funding shortfalls that are occurring. It so it sounds like a business write-off in a way. And the other thing too is let's talk about this is that um, we already talked about the control and everything like that. that, that we don't have to worry about the, the government controlling homeschools or, or, or private schools, et cetera. But here's something else that's pretty cool. One of the, uh, one of the other options that we have or, or the opportunities, I should say, that opens up with, with this type of an educational savings account. Again, the money follows the student. The money, we are funding students, not systems. Yeah. We're yeah, it says students. that in the bill. Yes. It says that in the bill that it's following the individual, not the system. Yeah. Which is an awesome footnote. And, and we think about a lot of the frustration and the pushback. And again, even being on the school board, looking at, gosh, we've got all this money. But at the end of the day, it just it gets sucked into all these systems that as a school board and we're, you know, as a local school board, you know, we wanted the best for our kiddos and we're a charter school. So we do things a little differently and we get better results as, uh, as, as a result of that. We're better outcomes as a result of that. Um, there's a lot of unfunded mandates that we didn't want to have to fund, but we had to because of the government rules and regulations, right? So something that is really, so, so what is that? The frustration at the end of the day is we are funding a system and not funding students. This bill changes that and says we're going to fund the students and not the systems. And so we allow the students and the parents and the free market or other people who can do it really well, we allow them to create new um, educational opportunities that get a better result. Now, what I want to talk about, and this is something that we have here in this area, and this is a really cool option. People say, well, what can I do with my money? Um, maybe um, I don't really like the school district I'm in, or I'm really concerned about the stuff that's going on in the schools with all the social goofy stuff, and I don't, or I don't feel safe, whatever it is, or I'm not getting the results I want. But I, but I, but maybe I, I work, um, or both of both of us work, or I'm a single parent and I work, so I can't homeschool my kid. And, and besides that, I don't know about you guys, but I get home, 
I couldn't homeschool math and science, right? I mean, my poor kids would, I would do them a disservice. Yeah. But here's what's neat is there are some homeschool groups that do co-ops here in, like even in our area here in the Magic yeah. Valley, they do co-ops, right? And some of them have pulled their money together to hire a, a teacher, a qualified certified teacher to be the instructor for their kids. Well, that's pretty awesome. If you have the money to do that, that's pretty cool, right? What's cool about this program is let's just say that, you know, you get, was it $5,950, right? Yeah. So almost $6,000. If you had 10 parents or 10, or parents who have 10 kids or whatever, you get 10 kids together. Now you've got a pool of about $60,000. You could hire a tutor and it spells that out in the bill. Um, you could hire maybe a teacher who's been frustrated because let's face it, guys, there's a lot of teachers who've left the school system out of frustration of all the same things that we're frustrated well, they, about. Well, they don't pay them well. You, we just talked about that. We talked about where does the money go? You know, what's up with the oversight? Why? Where's the money? And the teachers definitely aren't getting it. Anybody who knows a teacher or anybody who's going to college to get a teaching degree, they all say the same thing. And and if you've ever taught before, you realize you're putting in 120% of yourself. If you really actually want to show a kid how to do something, you get you have to get interested. You have to get invested in what you're doing. And if you're not, the kid's not going to be interested. You know, you're just doing it to teach. And um, yeah, it is a frustration. So. Yeah, imagine... That's a great point. Imagine finding a, a, a really good teacher, maybe who's burned out and maybe they're outside of education, but it's a calling, right? I mean, and, and yeah. we all know how that is. People who are listening know if, if you're outside of your calling and you're the passion of your heart, you know, money's fine and everything, but eventually, you know, there's that void there. But how about if we, if a group of parents got their kids together and they went to a teacher who's outside the system or one in who's frustrated and said, Hey, how would you like to make $70,000 a year teaching a class of about 13 students. I know a lot of teachers who teach for a whole lot less, about $50,000, and they teach a class of 30 students. So we're going to, you know, we're going to take these educational savings account. We're going to hire a qualified teacher to teach our kids, and they're going to make more money. They're going to have a smaller class size, and they're going to see that impact the teacher is of, of you know, those, those young minds that they're molding. So this is something that is really exciting. But I think the pushback, or we know the pushback as conservatives, is that is that there's a lot of vested interest in a system, right? Because these type of scenarios that we're talking about, they don't need, like, they don't need a, a bond levy to pass to build a new building. They don't need a union contract approval. They don't need necessarily um, a union to go and lobby the legislature to to give more money to to get those those teachers up to a certain salary. This is something that the the free market, free people making decisions that are best for their family, that's going to benefit their kids and it's going to benefit the teacher that they hire. I think that's a great option because there are a lot of people who say, "Gee, I'd like to homeschool, but I can't," or "I'd like to do this, but I can't afford it." This is a great equalizer. And this enables, this just puts up so many more cool options on the table for folks. Well, from my perspective, the the big problem with having an overarching system, right, that's based off the 1950s and 60s educational system of assembly line works, we're not all assembly lines. Individuals are different. That's why I loved it so much in the bill that it says the money is actually for the individual. Because when you teach somebody a good teacher is going to actually be able to relate with a lot of different types of personalities. And that's, that's the thing, right? Is not everybody's the same. So when you can use this money that way and you get all these diverse people in homeschool crowds and they can form committees and they're smart, they can make their own system. But of once again, that's going to scare the current system because that means there's another system. 
<laughs> and so I would think the people that would be opposing it most would be teachers and things like that. But it's interesting to hear that people are already realizing, hey, you know, maybe this could actually help me too. So that's good. Yeah, this actually the expands the, the possibilities for teachers across the board. If you're a qualified Absolutely. teacher, uh, you stand to do very well if this bill turns into law. So. Yeah, and you think about like um, like some of the teachers who have, and I have some friends, but I think of one that comes to mind, not a friend, but a famous one, is the Khan Academy, right? You look at that, and I believe that guy was a was a school teacher, and there's others like like the Khan Academy folks who they, they're excellent at, at teaching. They have a, really a God-given and, and God-ordained gift to teach and connect with students, right? We all had those teachers, you know, that's one reason why we love our teachers so much, because we all had those, those ones who just really got us, to your point earlier, Jamie, who you know, they're just really connecting with all, and, and, and we were the ones they connected with, right? Anyway, you think about some of these folks, like Khan Academy, he's like, well, shoot, I can do this on YouTube and teach kids how to how to, how to learn math. I mean, I was taking a, a, um, a math class in my master's program, and they referenced us to go over to Khan Academy. And I got to tell you, I, I watched the videos, and I'm like, holy cow, man, this dude is good. Yeah, so, so if you think about, like, teachers, and maybe hopefully there's some teachers listening today or school administrators, or you think about folks who are frustrated with the system. You know, this is a way to break out of that system and you can still do your passion. You can you can um, earn a, a, a better wage doing what you love without all the garbage of the of the bureaucracy in the system. You know, because if you think about it, that's very disempowering. If you're frustrated in, a, in the classroom or whatever and you see all this these these government mandates from the feds or the state or whatever coming down or if you're um, like in maybe Twin Falls schools or any of the other school districts where there's a strong union presence. And you have to really lobby the union in order to, to get more money or to, you know, make, you know, have better working conditions. You can really become the master of your own, of your own destiny with something like this because you can do like the Khan Academy folks do who do it on YouTube, but now you can actually do it one on one instructional with a smaller group of folks who are using their educational savings accounts and they're, they're, you know, purchasing your services and, and, and your skill set. And that's pretty exciting. And if the bill functioned as proposed, any homeschooler would love to have more funds to be able to do more things with their children. Piano classes, you know, mechanical things. There's so many things that if you see your own children want to be vested in, you don't always necessarily have the funds as a homeschooling parent to do those things or buy the resources needed to provide the environment to do those kind of things. But it's, it actually helps the parents overall, too, because then the parents will have to do research, they'll have to get invested in stuff, and they'll become better teachers with that money because they now have the resources to do that. So, Creighton, what's the status of this bill, SB 1038, currently? Yeah, great question. So, it was um, passed out of the committee last week with a do-pass recommendation. What's very interesting is that the Senate Education Chairman, who is a Republican, with a question mark behind his name, <laughs> voted with the two Democrats on the committee to against it. Any rate, that that's that's a conversation for another podcast. But anyway, but it did pass with um, all the other Republicans voting yes for it. However, the education lobby is is lobbying hard against it. It's supposed to come before the um, the full Senate this week. And so, what really what we what you folks, all the listeners, need to do is to contact your senators and recommend them and blow up their email. 
not literally blow up. Send them a lot of emails, phone calls, communicate however you can with them. So what people can do is they can reach out to their senator and you really need to do that this week and just let them know specifically, hey, I support S-1038. A lot of these senators and representatives, you know, some of our frustration that we have in Idaho is like, well, why don't they get us? Well, the real reason why they don't get us is because while you and I are out working every day and putting food on the table for our families, they are 400 and something lobbyists up there who are creating this bubble of alternate reality um, for some of these representatives and senators. And so um, so they need to hear from you. So please do. That's your that's our call to action today is please um, email your senator. So we know that our senator here in yeah, where I live in Filer, Senator Zeiderveld is definitely on board with this. For those of you who live in Twin Falls, Linda Hartkin is your senator. She's going to need a lot of help on this because um, she's she's a straight establishment, uh, almost a quasi-Democrat Republican there, I said it. But she's going to need some help on that because if, if history is any guide, Linda Hartkin, when it comes to different issues, usually kind of does whatever the lobbyists tell her to do. And those are not the lobbyists that, that are working for us. So there's our call to action. So this week is the week. Um, in addition to that, we know that prayer changes things. So that would certainly be a prayer request as well. But do reach out. Phone, email your senator and and reach out. Let them know that you support it. Great. So let's switch gears here a little bit. Uh, Currently, House Bill 24 just passed the House and it is going to the Senate. It also deals with education and funding. And I'm going to read the statement and purpose from this as well by Representative Megan Blankspeed. This bill expands the existing Idaho launch program to high school graduates starting with the class of 2024. Eligible graduates can receive a grant of $8,500 to be redeemed at the workforce training provider, career technical program, community college, or college of their choice. Preference will be given to students pursuing in-demand careers based on job market data. The bill also makes the following changes to Idaho law. Sunsets the Opportunity Scholarship Program after July 23. Sunsets the Post-Secondary Credit Scholarship and redirects any unusual appropriated advanced opportunity credits to the in-demand careers fund. As a fiscal note, this bill leverages and redirects $102 million in existing budget capacity for the Idaho Launch Program, $80 million annually from the in-demand careers fund, and $22 million in existing budgets freed up from the elimination of the post-secondary credit scholarship and opportunity scholarship programs. So, Creighton, who's deciding what programs are eligible for the monies as uh, just described in the purpose statement? Yeah, so this is one reason why we're talking about the two bills, and Jim, you spoke about it earlier, is the contrast in uh, the first bill, the Senate bill, which is freedom and and really free market and, and really funding students and empowering parents to get the results and the outcomes that they desire that is a, you know, that fits, best fits them, right? So now we have on the House side, this bill, HB 24, quite the opposite. And that's why we're talking about it today for the folks who are listening, because we want to share a contrast. We want to compare and contrast the two as really an evidence of really the ideologies, if you will, that are at play right now, even in our red state of Idaho, is you have people who believe in systems and funding systems um, and, and funding more government. And then you have on the other side, people who, who want to fund humans and free up people to make the best decisions for them and their family. So this one certainly is the former. This one funds a system. So your question was, who decides what the in-demand career 
speakers are, et cetera. So the challenge with this one is that, in, in my opinion, is that we, we've taken some of these scholarships and now we're rolling them all into one to the tune of $102 million. And it basically feeds through, um, who decides is it feeds through the Workforce Development Council, which again, sounds kind of cool, but anybody who's ever been unemployed and gone to a government uh, unemployment office, they call them Workforce Development. You see, <laughs> you see a lot of people on the government payroll who are running around. That's our workforce. <laughs> That's, yeah. I mean, the workforce development folks on the government side usually aren't as great as Indeed or Indeed.com if you're looking for a job or something like that. I mean, anyway, not to the tune of $102 million. So they're the ones who decide. And so then there's a, you know, the governor's council, right? That, uh, that helps. And, and it's usually comprised, the workforce development councils comprise a lot of business leaders, big business leaders. So, um, Joe's HVAC company, which really, really needs people, the local business owner who needs folks. Joe doesn't have any kind of a say over this. Joe has to count on some government bureaucracy. Or what? Oh, just a committee or a yeah, board a of committee, a board of people that don't are not vested, right? Exactly. They're not in it. So hopefully, folks can see that or hear that that the difference there, right? I mean, like the first bill was very people centric and student centric. This is very government funding centric. So this bill narrowly passed. As a matter of fact, it a majority of Republicans voted against it. So hats off to them. The Magic Valley moderate Republicans they joined in with Democrats and the other moderate Republicans. In in the state house joined with Democrats to get this bill through. The governor did a lot of hard lobbying. Some news reports have come out that that the governor called, you know, on their cell phones, called a bunch of freshman legislators and young legislators. Unfortunately, our local legislators, uh, Chanel Dixon, who ran as a conservative Republican, she voted for it. Um, I wrote her an email expressing her, you know, my dissatisfaction with that and shared with her some other alternatives. She came back and said that, you know, she stood stood by it. Um, Lance Clow in Twin Falls, he voted for it. Of course, Greg Lanting, you know, he's basically a Democrat <laughs> with the R behind his name, I think. Um, he voted for it as well. And then, of course, the... Um, the one Republican and the other Democrat up in Jerome County, they all voted for it as well. Steve Miller, you know, I sent him an email thanking him. He voted against it. But something that our listeners need to understand, a majority of Republicans voted against this bill. It was so egregious, or whatever you want to call it, that a majority of the Republicans in the House voted against it. But but our magic, a lot of our Magic Valley moderates and some moderates from around the other, other parts of the state, they joined with Democrats to push this bill through. So again... This challenges this notion of, hey, we're a 70%, 67% Republican state. Guys, if we're electing moderates like we have been, then this is the kind of results that you're going to get because they can vote with Democrats to push this thing through. It really is interesting, the contrast. One of the questions that I actually had about this, can colleges simply raise tuition if the kids start to receive this money? Because we talked about how the system's not spending the money correctly in the committees. And, and you know business minds. The moment they hear that free money is there, they're going to take it any way they can. And the idea is is that you expand your budget so you can get more in the next year. You know, So it's just a, it's another one of those things to think about. I think that's a great question. And yes, that's what I, in my email to Representative Chanel Dixon, um, telling her why I really wish she wouldn't have voted for that bill, is that we know statistically that um, the education, higher education, again, this is about post-secondary education. It's not about high schools or anything like this. It's about college, right? And workforce, <clears throat> workforce training programs, which Again, in and of themselves are good. We're not anti-college. We're certainly not against blue-collar um, skills um, training because that's those are the people who are making the good money. That's the needs we have in our valley for sure. We want that. 
But the question is, is this the best way to do it? And I think we're all pretty much in agreement that no, it's not. Um, and actually, a majority of the House Republicans believe that it wasn't. It was a couple of moderate uh, rhinos from our area as well, joining with the Democrats to push this thing through. So we know from a um, from Economics 101 is that anytime you subsidize something, so outside money that's not tied with true supply and demand, you're going to increase, probably you're going to increase the rates that's being charged for that. To your point exactly, Jamie, you you know, the, my family and I were talking about this the other day and we were sharing. I said, you know, when you look at inflation that we really complain about, you know, healthcare costs the last 30 years have gone through the roof. Gas, of course, we know gas has gone up. Check out higher education. Yes. And it has actually exceeded their their rate of inflation over the last 30 years has far outpaced healthcare, has far outpaced Gas, it's far outpaced a lot of the, the things that are the ones that liberals really complain about. Well, you're telling me that we're going to add $8,500 of quote, sort of, you know, pretty much free money. We're going to add that into, we're going to put an influx into our, into our university system of that per students and, and, it's, and only in certain professions or certain paths of study. I believe that it is going to raise the tuition. What's one of the great things? My daughter goes to CSI. What's one of the great things I love about CSI? Because she was at a, a, a college out of state and, you know, she got a good job opportunity here. So she's working and going to school. What I love about it is between her scholarships and, and her grants that she's won through her academic work, et cetera, we don't have any loans out. She's, I mean, we're completely, yes. this thing is either covered. And if it's not covered, it's maybe only a couple hundred dollars a year, right? As opposed to all the students who are out there having to get loans for hundreds of thousands of dollars right. for a degree they're not going to be able to and use. they get their career in their first three years is paying off loans and stressing out their new family. Right. It's never a good thing. So the question that I need, I don't think that they've considered the people who voted for this. And I, again, I brought this up with Chanel Dixon in the email is I said, what's the impact going to be for all the people out here listening who either go to CSI, their kids go to CSI, or they're going to some other affordable institution in the state of Idaho, what's going to happen when the government comes in and says, we're going to give you $8,500 now for that? Well, the tuition is probably going to go up. So if you have 10 students who are studying maybe HVAC, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say that only five of them get the grant, the other five if history is any guide, will most likely pay more for that education because of the extra money that came in through half of their classmates who are getting the grant. So, I mean, again, to your point, Jamie, the governor is, or it sounds really good when you say, Hey, we're funding this, we're funding that. We're going to, we're going to plug holes. We're going to plug holes in our, in our, um, in our (laughs) workforce. That all sounds great. We're going to fill them with great people. We're going to pay for it. But the thing is, is that sounds like a leaking boat. It's like you know, those holes. Yeah, right. <laughs> but when you when you get in there, the devil's in the details, like the yeah. saying goes, who really benefits from this? Well, the bureaucrats at the Workforce Development Council certainly benefit. The people who are involved, like uh, the big donors, like through the Idaho Association of Commerce and Industry, obviously known as IACI, those are all the big, a lot of the big businesses in our state, you know, St. Luke's, um, all the big hospitals are in there. Micron's in there. I believe, um, I'll have to look it up. We're going to do a future podcast on that. But a lot of our large companies are involved in that. Well, guess who really bankrolls a lot of the politicians in our state? It's that group, right? So now those folks are having a lot of influence over this $8,500. They're also having a lot of in and outsized, I would argue, influence over what is an in-demand in career. 
So I'm at Micron. I got to hire a couple of folks to do a job. Well, I can pick up the phone and call my representative on the Workforce Development Council or through IACU, whoever, and say, I could really use some taxpayer-funded trainees right now. Now, some people think that's okay, but honestly, I don't think most Idahoans are going to be okay with that. Suppose uh, Micron falls out of favor with the political establishment and they need some workers five years from now if this thing were to pass and there's a different governor or there's a different situation and that person says, you know, you didn't support me in my last campaign um, as much as I really wanted you to. So um, no, you're not going to get your taxpayer funded trainees. The issue isn't whether they got their taxpayer funded uh, uh, trainees because they were friends with the government. The issue is we should not be funding these private entities to fulfill their training programs. Yeah, it's a corporate, it's a corporatism and it's basically corporate welfare. So Creighton, how does this contrast with the Senate bill on where the monies are actually coming from? Yeah, that's a great question. So we we know from the statement of the, the fiscal statement that it that it takes money from two scholarships that are, have already been funded and then it rolls them into this. One of the concerns that people have is, and I believe, I'm not exactly sure, but I believe that this money comes from the expanded um, 400 and something million dollars that, that the legislature passed in special session last September. It showed up on our ballot as a question, do you approve of this? And so the voters obviously approved that extra spending, but that spending and the intent of the bill was for K through 12, right? For the basics, right? This and some of the critics in the legislature against HB 24 are saying that this money, this $8,500 per student to fund or per student going can apply for it. It goes into the workforce development slush fund, if you will, that this isn't for K-12. This is actually for college and, and higher ed. And that is not part of the original intent of what we voted on on the ballot last Science. November. So it sounds like a little bit of a bait and switch. Yeah. And in all honesty, the corporate, the corporatist type policies that have taken place in Idaho for the last 30 years with big business influencing the governor more than people being able to influence our government here in the state of Idaho. It you know kind of follows suit. It's kind of uh, par for the course for these guys. Would you say that the House bill empowers corporations versus the Senate bill empowering individuals? I think you're exactly right, Josh. That's a great way to to phrase it and to frame it. Yes, the Senate bill empowers individuals. The House bill empowers systems, and it empowers the Workforce Development Council, and 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 it which in turn empowers. Corporations, a lot of representatives who voted against it. Again, a majority of Republicans voted against it. The moderate rhino Republicans joined with Democrats to pass it. The ones who voted against it recognize this. Many of them used in Florida bait. You can watch it on the videos there on YouTube. This, this is corporate welfare that's designed and dressed up to look like we are helping to get students into the right careers to fill the holes. And that's really at the end of the day, when you look at how it's administered, that's not how it's really, I mean, that might be the intent or the statement, or whatever, but it really is used used as a slush fund basically to reward companies that, for whatever reason, reward certain companies and then not reward others. Now, I think what I would have rather seen, this is what I share with with Representative Dixon in my emails, I said I would have rather seen something that instead of funding a slush fund, which was never good, a government slush fund or a corporate slush fund with government taxpayer money, our money, I would have rather seen where all businesses could have applied for like a tax credit or something like that. That way, Frank's HVAC service 
over in you know over in Buell if there's one. I'm just making it up, but it, but but any HVAC service or um, they could apply and say, hey, we need some some to train up some journeymen HV, HVAC folks. We're going to take on a couple of folks, and I'm going to apply for a tax credit. Why a tax credit over a direct payment? Well, a it's or or, or through the workforce payment system is you know the HVAC contractors. If you're a small business owner, you don't have time to go through all that rigmarole applying and doing all this kind of stuff for to these government agencies. You just need folks and you're busy managing your own business. But if you can do a, if it's, if you can do it on your taxes and say, Hey, you know, this is the deal and you, you know, this is who I hired and these are the trainees and there's a tax credit on that. That's a direct benefit or that's, that impacts us less as taxpayers because there's less administration and the tax credit is not a dollar for dollar. It's an offset, right? Um, that's a better way. And that's a more free market empowering individual approach than it is to empower. The government on yeah, this. Yeah, the system. And the system's always slower than we are in getting right. things done that we want. So. And who are these government bureaucrats in the work? I mean, we, we talked about the Workforce Development Council itself. You know, the star chamber, if you will, is made up of industry leaders. But those industry leaders are busy leading their industries. If you've ever, they're not the ones who are making these decisions every day when you go to apply for unemployment or, or go to try to get a job. I know people who have exper- who have interacted with a lot of those folks. And a lot of those folks are very, they're not always as qualified as the people who are coming to apply for jobs yeah. through their organization. So again, as Idaho, you know, I think about all these, um, you know, sure. Republican politicians in our state who talk about the Idaho, Butch, Governor Butch R, the Idaho way, faith, family, and Idaho values. I'm not making light of that. Those are, those are good values. What I'm questioning is, are Idaho values values that empower more government or are they ones that empower more people? And that's the distinction that we're talking about here. So HB 24, do not come to me, to to the voters in 2024 and say, I'm all about Idaho values when you just voted to fund a program that creates more bureaucracy and that keeps the folks, you know, that that doesn't, that empowers bureaucracy and doesn't empower people. But if you come and say, hey, I did, I, I voted against it because I believe in people, then those, that's where the Idaho values are. That's, those are the Idaho values. Right on. So, Creighton, how can listeners pray for this topic regarding these bills? You know, I think that um, I love that this part of our of our podcast where we talk about that. I think that some of the, the some of the prayer requests that, you know, we've gotten in from our friends who are in the Senate and some other you know folks that we know who are elected officials. A lot of it is really praying that God would expose the corruption and the, really the cronyism that's taking place. Um, I think uh, certainly as always, it's always good to you know follow what the what the Bible says, which is to humble ourselves and pray and everything, and so that God will heal our land. I think that that's a good prayer. But one of the things that God has really put on my heart is really exposing the corruption, you know, and helping to open people's eyes to see that. One of the reasons why I ran for office back in 2022, and I obviously made a decision in 2021 after a lot of prayer and consideration, is I just began to look around at other states that were purple states, states that either didn't vote for Trump or they were really, really, he won, but it was super close, or they had a they had a a, a Democrat a Republican governor, but maybe a split house a split legislature, Democrats and Republicans. In other words, purple states. And here the and they were beating Idaho and leading the way farther than us on education reform and empowering humans and be and and, and, and 
individuals rather than corporations or bigger government. Purple states. I was like, what is wrong? How are we falling behind in these things? And as I began to, 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 to dig in and lean into all that stuff, what I recognized is that while a majority of Idahoans, a vast majority are conservative and we do believe in Idaho values of individual freedom and of faith and of family, those are important values. When it comes to Boise, you have a, a government bureaucracy up there and our, and our, a lot of our elected leaders were actually, while they campaigned on those things, they basically served corporations and big lobbyists and big government. And so that's a big change. So exposing the corruption of that so that people can identify that and see and say, hey, we can make a change. And that is the blessing, right? Yeah. I think Ronald Reagan said that it was either Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush said, freedom is not America's gift to the world. It's God's gift to humanity. And that's exactly right. We can make a change. So we don't want to get everybody all frustrated. We want to get people empowered and we want to get people to act on what they're learning. Because guess what? God has given us a republic and we can keep it. Right on. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for listening to MBLA Radio. Check out our website at mvlibertyalliance.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter where we take an in-depth look at Idaho politics. That's mvlibertyalliance.org. Also in the description of this podcast, you'll find a link to some of our partners, John Birch Society, Idaho Freedom Foundation, as well as Citizens Alliance Idaho. Lastly, be sure to contact your legislatures and share your informed opinion as a voting citizen using emailidaho.com, which makes reaching out very user-friendly. Until next time, live free, die free.